In November of 1992, a farmer in England by the name of Peter Waitling lost his hammer. And don't worry, the story gets better. And so he called a neighbor of his, his neighbor, he had a neighbor named Eric Laws, and, and he called Eric because Eric owned a metal detector. And so Peter brings Eric out into his pasture where he knows that pasture contains his hammer somewhere. And uh, they started looking, and this probably around this area somewhere, and they started looking, and the, and the, the metal detector goes off. And so the two friends start digging, but they don't find his hammer. Instead, the first thing that made that metal detector beep was, was a spoon. And it looked to them like, first, that spoon was really old, and second, it looked like it was made out of gold. And both those things turned out being true. And the thing was still beeping in that area, and they kept digging. And to make the long story short, what they wound up uncovering that day was literally a buried treasure. Fifth, over 15,000 gold, uh, excuse me, coins, some of them gold, some of them silver, uh, some of them bronze, a couple of other hundred other items like that golden spoon that were very valuable. That's actually a picture of his hammer. Good news, they found the hammer. Um, and that's part of the, of the treasure there in that, in that picture. By, according to British law, they had to turn over the treasure to the government, but also according to British law, the government had to pay them like a fair market value. And these two guys split today, not in pounds, but in today's dollars, about four million bucks they split. They were looking for a hammer and they found a treasure. Well, by the time, um, you know, that line where we sort of arbitrarily, not really, but what we call the first century, that line between B.C. and A.D., that the first century, by that time, God's people Israel had been looking for something for a long, long time. They'd actually been looking for someone for a long, long time. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel had been given promises and hints and clues of a, of a special person God was going to send. Uh, the first time he's promised is at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, after the first sin, when God pronounces the curse that will come into the world because of sin. Before he pronounces the curse, he pronounces this promise that someday there's going to be a man born, a descendant of Eve, who's going to crush the serpent of old and reverse the curse of sin. And, and maybe the, number, the most important theme of the Old Testament is that descendant is coming. In Genesis, we learn that that descendant was going to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. In 2 Samuel, we learn he's going to be a descendant of King David. We learn in that time period that he's going to be a king like David. He's going to reign on David's throne. We learn in Micah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, we learn um, lots of other things. And for time's sake, we'll just leave it right there. But the, the, the lingering question left by the Old Testament is who will this guy be? When is he coming? How will we know he's there? And it's him. 
But by the first century, 400 years have gone by since God has said anything through any prophet about this this descendant who will be a king. He came to be known by, in Hebrew, Messiah, in Greek, Christ. Just two different words for the same person. I think that lingering question is why the New Testament, God ordained to have it start with the book of Matthew. Because this king, we know what family he's going to come from, and we know some things about him. Who will he be? Matthew writes his book to tell us the king has come. You know, if there were, if there were publishing companies around when Matthew wrote his, his book, what we call the Gospel of Matthew, they would have had him, you know, come up with a catchier title. He didn't call it the Gospel of Matthew, by the way. That was added later. It would have been called something like the king has come or the kingdom is here or something like that so that we would know ahead of time a little bit about what we are reading before we jump in. But that's what this book is about. The reason Matthew starts or the New Testament starts with what we're going to read today, which is just a genealogy, is this genealogy proves Jesus is from that family line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. If you're writing a a book to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the King, starting with the genealogy is a great idea. If you're writing just to entertain people, starting with a genealogy is a terrible idea because they're never the most exciting portions of Scripture. But that's what this, uh, it's how this starts and it's what it's for. Matthew's going to show us as we study the book of Matthew uh, for probably the next, I don't know, year and a half. It's going to take a while. I hope it's good because we're going to be in it for a while. He's going to show us Jesus is the king. But he's not going to be the kind of king people expected. And the kingdom he reigns over is not the kind of kingdom anyone expected. That, that, that theme is going to build. He's the king. The king is here. The kingdom's at hand. It's going to build and grow till about chapter 12 when the nation of Israel decides, eh, no thanks. And they reject the idea that Jesus is their Messiah. And you know why they reject that Jesus is their Messiah? Not because there's not plenty of evidence that says Jesus is the Messiah. There's plenty of evidence. Because he's not the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a more traditional kind of king. And they wanted a more traditional kingdom. They wanted Messiah to raise them up over all the nations of the world, especially Rome. We're going to throw down Rome, lift us up, so that we are on top of the heap. And we are the greatest nation. That's what they wanted. And as soon as Jesus makes clear that's really not the kind of kingdom he is offering right now, then they don't want to hear it. You know what it's like? It's like they were so busy looking for the hammer that they missed the treasure. That they wanted a Messiah to use as a hammer against Rome and all the other nations of the world. And when Jesus wouldn't be used the way as a tool, the way they wanted it to use the Messiah, they kept looking for the hammer that never came. 
And they ignored that God had sent a priceless treasure to bless all the nations and families of the earth like God promised Abraham he would do. Maybe, I don't know how much familiarity you have with like the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe you're fairly new to church. Maybe you've never read the Gospel of Matthew. That's great. I'm so glad you are here. Please come and I want to encourage you if you're not familiar with this, and maybe you haven't been looking for Jesus at all, I just want you to come and hear Matthew out and see if maybe what God offered through Jesus is better than whatever it is you've been looking for. But if you're somebody who's been in church most of your life and you've been, you've been hearing about Jesus since you could hear and, and understand things, I, I want... I want to invite you to take a fresh look with sort of fresh eyes in this book by one of Jesus' friends, one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Matthew. It's, it's really possible that you and I are carrying around some inaccuracies about Jesus or probably we're carrying around something of a caricature of Jesus. You know what a caricature is? like in political cartoons where they draw these pictures and certain aspects of somebody are exaggerated and other aspects are ignored. It's really possible we do that with Jesus, where our ideas about Jesus, we exaggerate some of his characteristics and we try not to think about some others. So let's let, as we begin this day, let's, let's let Jesus' friend Matthew tell us in his words what Jesus was like and what he really taught so that we can make sure we're getting to know the right treasure. Before we dive in, I want to give you just a little bit of information about the book as a whole. Uh, If you're really paying attention as we go through, you'll notice Matthew never identifies himself as the author. Like John in his gospel gets to the end and says, oh yeah, by the way, it's me, John. I've been writing this thing. Matthew never does that. I want you to be confident that that's who wrote it. Here's how you can know. Uh, First, it was written very early, early enough that it certainly was one of Jesus' contemporaries who wrote it. Uh, We know that. There's a book called the Didache, which is a collection of teachings of the apostles. It was written about the year 100, AD 100, and it quotes the Gospel of Matthew heavily. And it was written about 100. So Matthew had been written, copied, disseminated, um, so it's, it's old enough to have been Matthew. Then there's a guy named Polycarp. And besides having an awesome name, Polycarp was a disciple or a student of the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend. And Polycarp said Matthew wrote this, which makes me assume John said Matthew wrote this. And that's, that's good enough for me. So that's who wrote it. And Matthew, we're going to see him, meet him. He really only comes up in one chapter as a main character in chapter 9, where we learn what Matthew did for a living. Matthew, uh, or he's also called Levi, he was a tax collector. And before we ever start the book, I want to tell you what that means about Matthew. It means Matthew bought a license to extort his fellow Jews from the Roman government. 
Here's how Rome collected taxes. They didn't travel around and collect taxes from people. They didn't wait for people to submit their 1040s online either. What they did is they sold the job as tax collector to the highest bidder. And that's all they did. And their work was done. So Matthew decided at some point, hey, I think I want that job. And so he scraped together enough money to put in a really big bid. And he was the highest bidder. And so he took this pot of money, gave it to Rome. And in exchange, they gave him a license that basically said, you can go tell people to give you money to pay off what you've already paid to Rome. Um, and they didn't, Rome didn't care how much extra, how much Matthew made. They never asked. Um, tax collectors were, they were the greatest sellouts of the ancient world. They were the most, among the most hated people in Israel. They were like the anti-Robin Hoods. They robbed from the poor to give to the rich, right? They robbed from the poor to make themselves rich and support Rome. And people hated their guts. That's Matthew. And he writes again to tell us that Jesus um, is the king. He doesn't write in chronological order. He doesn't uh, order his things, but he teaches us that way. And he begins, like I said, with a genealogy. And we're going to read that together. It is riveting material. Okay? The first 17 verses. Uh, and what has to be in there is there. But it's what... It, you know, if Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David aren't listed among Jesus' ancestors, Jesus can't be the Messiah. So what has to be there is there. But it's what doesn't have to be there, but Matthew puts in there anyway, that makes this actually very interesting. All right, we're going to read it together. What we're going to read, this is actually not Jesus' biological lineage, because this is Joseph's family tree. And as we'll see next week, um, Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. This is Jesus' legal lineage because Joseph adopts Jesus as his oldest son. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus is covered either way biologically because his, his mom Mary was also from uh, Abraham, the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David as well. You would have to see that in the book of Luke. But we're going to read this genealogy. I'll go quickly through some of it. Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses. And they read this way in the New American Standard Bible. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, that's the, the mom. Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Verse 7. 
Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. And Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. <sighs> I lost my cursor there. There we go. Verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihu. Abihu was the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim is the father of Azor. Azor is the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akin. Uh, Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer. Eliezer was the father, father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. I underline the words by whom right there just to remind myself to tell you this. In the Greek, that is feminine, which means what Matthew is saying in the Greek very clearly is that uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom only Mary. Jesus was born. Everybody else would be uh, masculine, all the other pronouns in here. 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon of the Messiah, 14 generations. Okay. Um, Matthew has two main points by writing that genealogy the way he writes it. The first one is the most obvious that I've shared with you. Jesus comes legally from the right family line to have a claim of being Messiah. What has to be there is there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. What doesn't have to be there is what makes this interesting. Here's what doesn't have to be there, which would have been unnecessary and unusual. Besides Mary, Jesus' mom, Matthew includes four and only four women in this genealogy. And if his only point is that Jesus comes from the right legal line to be king, no women need to be mentioned because the kingly line is inherited through the males, through men, through dads. But if Matthew decided, well, I want to include the mamas too, well, then he did a terrible job of that also because there's way more mamas that we know about from Jesus' family line uh, that he could have added with just minimal research. He doesn't even include the easy ones. I could ask some of you and you could tell me who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were married to. He doesn't add them. He just, he picks seemingly at random four women to include in Jesus's genealogy. And I think we're supposed to notice that and ask ourselves, why are they there? What is Matthew's point of including only four, and these four in particular. And we're going to see as we answer that question that Matthew is already beginning to teach about the different nature of Jesus as a king and his kingdom as the kingdom. I can't take the time to tell you in great detail, the stories of these four women, but if I don't tell you a little bit about these four gals, we, can, we can't answer the question of why they're there. So we're going to go one at a time through the four women he lists 
so we can try and discover why he put them in there. He clicks along, Matthew does, in regular genealogical fashion. You heard throughout the thing, this guy was the father of this guy, that guy was the father of this guy, that guy was the father of this guy. And all of a sudden in verse 3, he lists two twins, only one of them is Jesus' ancestor. He lists these twins, and then he reminds readers, or tells us, that their mama was a woman named Tamar. Now, if you, if you want to learn more about Tamar, just write down somewhere Genesis 38. Don't turn there now, because I want you to stay with me if you would. But Genesis 38 is where we read her story. If you really want to know her story better, I preached a whole sermon on her story in our Genesis series. You can find that by clicking through to the sound, our SoundCloud page from our, the sermon page of our website. Here's Tamar's story, the sort of Cliff Notes version. Tamar was a Canaanite woman. She was not an Israelite. And she was a Canaanite who was treated very badly by her father-in-law, and her father-in-law was Judah. Here's that story. Judah ditched his brothers, and he probably shouldn't have, but they were a pretty good bunch to get away from, to tell you the truth. And he, he, he settles in Canaan, and he sees this Canaanite gal named Tamar. He maybe thinks she's nice, whatever. And he takes his oldest son, and he marries his oldest son to Tamar. Then his oldest son drops dead. All of a sudden, they don't know why. If you read Genesis 38, I'll tell you a secret. God killed him. Like God ripped him out of the world. Because of the the, the cultural custom of their day, Judah was bound to take his next oldest son and marry him to Tamar also. Guess what happened to him? He dropped dead too. By custom, Judah was bound. The right thing for him to do was take his only remaining son and marry him also to Tamar. But Judah decided, I'm not sure I want to marry my youngest son to the black widow over here. And so here's what he does to Tamar. He says, you go back to your dad's house. And that like doesn't mean anything to us. That would make sense to us. But this was... Tamar was married into Judah's household. Judah was supposed to be responsible for Tamar. And what he was saying was, you just get out of here. You go back to your home and you will live as a childless widow the rest of your life until I decide to marry you to my youngest son. Tamar decides he's never going to do the right thing and I don't want to live my life as a childless widow. So here's what she does. Try to keep this family friendly here. Um, it's a tough story to do that with. Uh, she dresses up like a prostitute when, uh, when her father-in-law is coming through town and tricks her father-in-law into, well, you know, into buying her services, and she becomes pregnant by her father-in-law. And that's where these two twins listed in the genealogy come from. It's a terrible story, really. Okay, that's woman number one. Second woman that gets listed in this story comes in verse five when Matthew mentions that Boaz's mama was a woman named Rahab. If you want to read about Rahab, write down Joshua 2 because that's where her story is told. 
Rahab, unlike, unlike Tamar, Rahab didn't have to dress up as a prostitute because she already was one. That's what she did for a living. And her story, in brief, is that she had become convinced that the God of Israel was going to give the city-state she lived in over to their enemies, Israel. She believed God was going to deliver her town to the enemy. And so she threw her lot with the God of Israel. She hid a couple of spies from an armed mob that was looking for them to kill them. She risked her life for these spies. She did a brave thing and a good thing, but she was a prostitute. Next woman Matthew lists in Jesus' genealogy is a woman named Ruth. If you want to read Ruth's story, look up a book in the Bible named Ruth. (laughs) That's her story. I love her story. I love Ruth. Ruth is a fantastic person. I love the book of Ruth. But Ruth was a Moabite or a Moabitess, if you'd rather. And according to the law, Deuteronomy 23, under no circumstances was an Israelite ever supposed to marry a Moabite. Not if they converted, not if they loved God, not if they were a good person, not if anything. Ruth actually got married to Israelites twice. (laughs) And she is the outsider of outsiders as a Moabite. And now the fourth woman that Matthew includes in this genealogy. In the Greek, all he calls her is the wife of Uriah. Now we know from reading the book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 11 and, and following, that her real name was Bathsheba. So some of our translations, like the New American, just put her name in there. But Matthew just calls her the wife of Uriah. Maybe you know the story of David and Bathsheba. Again, to keep this family friendly, here's the, here's the quick version. Uh, David, while his army was out fighting a war, instead of being out where he should have been leading the army, which kings did in those days, he stayed at home. While he was home, at home, he was up on the roof of his house. He looked down in some courtyard and he saw a, a young woman bathing. And he liked what he saw and he asked about her and he found out... Uh, Not only are you not married to that gal, David, but one of your best friends, a guy named Uriah, is married to her. That's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And David decided, I don't care, bring her up. And uh, she was brought up to his chambers, and she became pregnant with David's child. When David learned that to try and cover up what he had done, he orders his friend Uriah to come home from the war, And he tries to arrange things so that Uriah spends the night with his wife and then Uriah and everybody else will think that baby is Uriah's baby and not David's. Uriah, a couple of different times, refuses to do that because his men are out roughing it on the battlefield and I shouldn't be enjoying all the comforts of home. And so then uh, David quickly goes to plan B, which is to have Uriah killed. He orders Uriah. uh, He's actually, this this is what he does. He writes out orders seals them and makes Uriah deliver the orders that will kill him back to the supreme commander on the battlefield. The orders go like this. Put Uriah in the front of the battle. Advance. When you're engaged, have everybody run away except Uriah so that he is killed. And then David marries Bathsheba um, on his own. All right, that's the, that's the four women. 
Not the best stories and most wholesome stories in the scriptures, right? And again, I think we're supposed to ask ourselves, why why does Matthew include these four gals, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, in this genealogy? Because in the ancient world, this was the kind of stuff that was hidden from a king's history. And this didn't even have to be hidden because it didn't have to be put there at all. Matthew makes a point of putting their names where they don't have to be. Why does Matthew put them there? A few reasons. One, I think Matthew does want us to understand Jesus did not come from a line of the most pure and the most righteous and the best people. Now, he didn't really have to include these four gals for us to get that because most of the guys we know about are nightmares also. But Matthew, already in this genealogy, is starting to preach to us about what kind of king Jesus is, what kind of kingdom he offers entrance into. And he does want us to know because Jesus didn't come from the best, the most righteous, the most wholesome, Jesus didn't come for the best and the most righteous and the most wholesome. He's the the Messiah of Israel and for Israel, but he's not only for Israel. He's for Canaanites, he's for Moabites, and he's for all the other kind of ites that are out there. This is much of what will get Jesus rejected by the religious leaders of their day because Matthew's already hammering away at prevalent religious thought, which goes like this. You know who God loves? You know who God uses? You know who God picks? You know who God uh, accepts? People from the right families. The people who have it all together. The people who are morally upright and good. And Matthew says, nah, nah. Not by a long shot. It's like Matthew is saying, it's like almost anybody could have wound up in Jesus' genealogy. Like if a Moabite can wind up in there, if prostitutes can wind up in there, like anybody could have, could have wound up in Jesus' genealogy. And just like anybody could have wound up in the genealogy, Matthew wants you to know, anybody can wind up in his kingdom. And Matthew knows this better than anyone. Because Matthew, we don't know much about him. We just know he was a tax collector, which lets us know he thought making himself rich would give him what he wanted out of life and he was willing to pay a high price to get rich. And second, we know he experienced Jesus picking someone everyone else hated. There had to be a time in Matthew's life where he decided something, I just don't feel like life is enough. I just don't feel like like I'm fulfilled, like life is good enough. You know what I think would make life better if I had even more money than I've already got? So he buys himself a tax collector position. 
and everybody hates his guts. And one day he experienced this homeless, wandering Galilean preacher named Jesus walk along and he notices this hated tax collector in his booth. And Jesus knows, you may be rich, but you are broken and lonely and hated and marginalized. Jesus says, why don't you come follow me? I know nobody else likes you, but I pick you. I think if Matthew were here this morning, here's what he would say. He would say, I was the guy who had the hammer. Right? He wasn't looking for the hammer and found a treasure. Like, I had it. I was rich. That's what I thought I could use to make my life whole. I had it. I got it. It didn't work. And in Jesus, I found the treasure. And I think Matthew would say, listen, I don't know who you are, what you're using, what you're chasing, what you're looking for to give you what you think you need and want out of life. But Jesus is better. Take my word for it. He's better. When when Matthew left that tax collector, he dropped the hammer to find the treasure. And I think Matthew would also say this. I don't know what your past is, but by writing out my, uh, the genealogy the way I wrote it, I wanted you to know you are not too far gone to be picked and used by God. There's a reason, because he was a tax collector. Matthew's not scared or shy to write a genealogy that basically says, hey, everybody, Jesus had hookers in his genealogy. Because Matthew walked with Jesus and saw him, saw him call out to people like that. Matthew was hated way more than prostitutes were hated. Way more. Jesus picked it. There's only 12 disciples and he got to be one of them. And I think Matthew would say, listen, you think you're too sinful, too awful? You think you're too big of a louse, too big of a wretch for Jesus to, to, to use you? You're not as big of a louse as me. And I think he puts Rahab in that genealogy to show you this. Listen, God didn't say, Rahab, if you quit being a prostitute, maybe we can talk. He picked her while she was still in the profession. I think Matthew would say, uh, you, think you're, you think you're an outsider? You think nobody likes you? You think you're lonely? Try being a Moabite in Israel. That's who Ruth was. God used her. You think your family's a mess? You think your marriage is a wreck? Uh, Tamar's husbands kept dropping dead, and she tricked her father-in-law into giving her twins. I bet you ain't got that going on in your family. Matthew would say, I don't know where you're at, what your background is, how bad you feel about you. Nobody's sin ever spoiled that treasure. Nobody's background ever spoiled the treasure Jesus is. 
and offers. All he asks for you to come into his kingdom is accept the king for who he really is and accept what he offers as what he offers. And I would say to you like this, stop trying to use the Messiah as your hammer. Stop trying to make God, God, you only love me if you do what I want. And I want this, and if you're not doing it, then you're not real. Matthew said, put the hammer down and find the treasure that's really offered. Just like the Jews had other ideas of what Messiah would do for them, Matthew would say, listen, it's okay that he does for you something different than what you wish he would do for you. It's going to be better. So for you and me, I think what Matthew would have us consider is what is the hammer we are chasing? What is it we think will fill us up, make us whole? What is that thing we are holding God hostage? God, if you are really real and you love me, I will get, Matthew says, drop the hammer. Accept the treasure. It won't be what you expect or what you lay out, but it will be better. Would you pray with me? Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, God, you do not send us everything we want. But you have sent us everything we need. You have given us the treasure that is your son. Your mercy, your grace. God, I thank you for the truth that if you can come from sinners and jerks and prostitutes and nightmares that you can come for people as messed up as us. You came from jacked up people for jacked up people. God, I thank you that you just offer entrance in your kingdom through the cross by faith. God, be our treasure as we study this book. I pray you'd use it in a powerful way to shape our desires that we would just want the treasure you offer more than we want the tools of our desires. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.